Hi everyone and welcome to the ADEA podcast series presenting a number of topics identified by you, members of the Australian Diabetes Educators Association. The ADEA podcast series highlights latest updates and research in the areas that are relevant to best practice in diabetes management, diabetes care and diabetes education. My name is Jan Orford, a long-time ADEA member, and I will be your host. Today we will be discussing Help Me, Secondary Causes of Diabetes with Associate Professor Jerry Greenfield from St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. And over the next 20 minutes or so, I will be posing a series of questions. Hello, Jerry, and thank you for your time today. Hi, Jan, no problem. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'd like to start the session by asking uh, the first question, if I may. What are the patient characteristics that you would make, would make you suspicious that a patient with diabetes has a cause other than type 1 or type 2? Yeah, that's an interesting question and one that we really come across on a, on a daily basis with the patients that we see and it's always in the back of our minds that the patient may have something that's a little unusual uh, in a form of diabetes that's not typical. Um, it's, there are a number of factors that sort of I will come into my mind when it comes to thinking about potential alternative causes and one of the uh, commonest one is obviously a family history and it's obviously not uncommon for patients to have a family history of type 2 diabetes uh, or even type 1, but it's a patient who's got a very strong vertical family history of diabetes, particularly with young onset of age, that might make me think that the individual uh, may not have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And this is obviously most informative when it comes to thinking about genetic forms of diabetes, the MODIs, mitochondrial diabetes or some of the other syndromic diabetes that uh, uh, that we see. The other clue often in those situations is some of the other features of the syndromic diabetes uh, conditions such as um, maternally inherited diabetes and deafness and the Milas syndrome and also uh, Wolfram syndrome. So there are a number of other features there such as strokes or deafness or optic atrophy, um, uh, uh, etc. that might make me think a little bit more about those conditions. The Another sort of clue I suppose uh, with some of the uh, um, early onset diabetes, the CUR 6.2 mutations might be when basically a patient's diabetes duration is the same as their age and one needs to think about some of the early onset diabetes uh, uh, causes. But putting the genetic genetics aside, the others are obviously the patient's phenotype and what they look like. So it's obviously important to undress all of the patients when we see them and lipodystrophy is not an uncommon but probably an under-recognised contributor to diabetes and this can occur in the case of HIV lipodystrophy but also in um, acquired and congenital forms of lipodystrophy which again are not very, very common but certainly a number of our patients that we see will have these conditions. Um, if I'm thinking about pancreatic disease and either pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer, again, it's been an interesting uh, set of literature that's sort of uh, uh, been published because it's sometimes very difficult to 
pick these patients. If someone has new diabetes out of the blue without a family history and has had some weight loss or other suggestive features that might point us towards the pancreas, obviously this can be very helpful. Or a patient who's very had very good diabetes control for many years and then suddenly has a deterioration, again, would possibly alert me to looking at the pancreas in more detail. And the others would be other endocrine diseases such as Cushing's disease, acromegaly, pheochromocytoma, and of course um, uh, there uh, extreme weight gain or weight loss might be some of the others. So it's really suggestive features. Okay, you actually answered my second question, but we'll not move on to, you mentioned uh, lipodystrophy as, as a cause of diabetes. Can you tell us a little about a little bit about what causes lipodystrophy and how you might recognise it clinically. Yeah, I, I, I can. And just the only other condition that I didn't mention in the earlier question was hemochromatosis, and that's obviously an alternative uh, contributor to, to diabetes we sometimes think about, particularly if there's a family history or other uh, signs of iron overload. But in relation to lipodystrophy, um, Again, the, 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 there are two uh, uh, types of uh, lipodystrophies. You've got the congenital ones, and these ones are um, interesting in that uh, these individuals obviously have some of these uh, features from a very young age, and uh, I would initially be alerted to lipodystrophy based on the patient's phenotype. So they often lose um, fat, so the lipodystrophy, from the face and they've got a characteristic facial appearance. Also the buttocks are another um, uh, place that would indicate uh, or be suggestive of, of fat loss. Um, and then the other forms is congenital and acquired. The acquired forms are, as I mentioned, related to HIV, sometimes related to um, viruses that occur at a young age that can precipitate this, some autoimmune conditions. But then once someone is identified as having lipodystrophy, it can either be generalised, so it can affect um, the whole body, or it can be partial, and this essentially refers to those uh, lipodystrophies that have a characteristic and only partial uh, um, uh, pattern in terms of the uh, areas affected. And again, we see these from time to time, and the key question is whether or not it's a congenital or acquired type of lipodystrophy. The commonest probably, or at least until recently, was the HIV lipodystrophies. And these are often readily identified from HIV or the HIV uh, treatments that cause patients to not only lose fat, but then to manifest marked metabolic abnormalities that are probably consequence to losing that adipose tissue. So if one doesn't have adequate adipose tissue stores to lock away fatty acids, for example, then triglyceride levels and fatty acids in the blood may be very high. These individuals are often also quite insulin resistant um, and uh, they require a specific set of medications to really get that under control. So to answer your question, how to recognise it clinically is really to get every patient, to examine every patient that we see in detail so we can identify their fat loss and then think about the potential causes that might be contributing to their diabetes. Okay, thank you for that. Um, we know that diabetes is a common complication of cystic fibrosis and I just wonder how, if you could tell our members how common it, this is and how is it best screened for? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Cystic fibrosis is, uh, you know, really, uh, or cystic fibrosis related diabetes, as it's called, is really a distinct form of diabetes. 
And there are multiple contributors, but one of the main ones is the pancreatic physiology that occurs as part of cystic fibrosis. And it's really a specific or boutique form of diabetes because the diagnostic criteria are unique and the management is really unique. I mean, cystic fibrosis affects about one in 2,500 live births. It's an autosomal recessive condition. and the majority of cases are due to a particular um, mutation that leads to lung disease, um, hepatobiliary and intestinal disease, but also pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And these individuals are often chronically malnourished. They have malabsorption, protein catabolism, and they not only develop diabetes, but also osteoporosis, and they have a reduced life expectancy as well. So. Um, it, 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 it does occur commonly in cystic fibrosis and if one looks at uh, how one identifies it or how it differs from typical type 1 and type 2 diabetes, it, it's obviously it occurs at a, at a young age, antibodies are negative, insulin secretion is severely depressed but it's not absent altogether, insulin sensitivity is often reduced but they don't have severe insulin resistance. And the treatment really for these individuals in large part is insulin therapy. They do, they can develop microvascular complications, but it's not common. Macrovascular complications are very unlikely. And the reason why we treat cystic fibrosis related diabetes is not necessarily only to improve their diabetes control, but we know that by giving individuals with cystic fibrosis related diabetes insulin therapy, for example, that there is an improvement in lung function that is often seen as a consequence of this. Now I mentioned diagnosis and this has really been quite a challenging area. There is a suggestion that and some good evidence um, from the uh, Children's Hospital in Sydney that uh, using traditional diagnostic criteria such as an oral glucose tolerance test will really uh, under-diagnose cystic fibrosis related diabetes and the reason why that is the case is that it, 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 a lot of individuals will have you know, so-called normal glucose tolerance, but if you look at the correlation between those levels and body weight and lung function, uh, we know that we really need to make a diagnosis at a lower set of glucose values. So we use a glucose tolerance test and our practice has been that we look at the 30, 60, 90 minute glucose readings and we have lower thresholds for diagnosing it only because we know that if we treat those individuals, they probably will benefit in terms of lung function. So we have um, looked at patients treated uh, for cystic fibrosis who are either waiting for or not waiting for lung transplantation and we've systematically looked at the rates or the prevalence of diabetes in those individuals but also following transplantation and really if you apply those more strict criteria then one finds almost that the majority of patients with cystic fibrosis who have advanced disease um, have a form of cystic fibrosis related diabetes. So the main message really I think is that we need to actively look for this in patients with CF. We don't always necessarily have to institute treatment if their glucose level is only slightly elevated but in my mind at least we have to flag these individuals as being high risk for deterioration in glycemic control especially after transplantation when they'll be treated with steroids and uh, Again, this is a challenging form of diabetes, but one that's un, you know, not always recognised and certainly underdiagnosed. Thanks, Jerry. I guess listening to what you've been talking about, you've talked about a number of subtypes of diabetes. So I just wonder mm. if you could comment 
um, on with the advent of genome sequencing, will we see better mm. elucidation of subtypes of diabetes? Well, yes, I think we will. the The challenge has been uh, the uh, uh, difficult access to uh, the tools that we know can identify particular forms of diabetes. And in all of our clinics, probably up to about 5% or more of our patients um, have particular genetic forms of diabetes that are currently unrecognised. And this is a really important area to address because we know that, for example, patients with MODY2 or glucokinase mutations often don't, at least in the initial years, need to be treated except for, say, pregnancy. Um, they have very little, if any, response to oral hypoglycemic agents or insulin, and microvascular complications are rare. Um, so we, for example, we know that those patients can often come off their diabetes therapy, as I said, particularly in the early stages. MODY3, HNF1-alpha mutations are different, but these are patients who are often diagnosed around the time of pregnancy with type 1 diabetes, but their antibodies are negative and have a mutation in HNF1-alpha uh, that puts their glucose levels up. And again, we know that these individuals, if we can bypass the defect, are exquisitely sensitive to very low doses of sulfonylurea and can, and can and come off their insulin therapy. So it is important to diagnose these conditions uh, so that we can uh, better manage these patients. And from a cost point of view, if patients don't need to be treated with insulin, and obviously may have also adverse effects, then there's obviously health as well as economic benefits in this regard. Now, we know about different forms of diabetes, which are uh, so-called heritable, um, but there are a number of others that we probably don't know about at this stage. And we're able to perform panels to look for MODI uh, causes of diabetes in patients who've got a strong or suggestive family history or other features that might suggest it. And again, often if we look at clinical features such or, or laboratory features such as the oral glucose tolerance test in patients, that can be very helpful. So patients with glucokinase have a very small increment during an OGTT, whereas those with HNF1-alpha mutations often have a large increment. And we can get clues both clinically and from laboratory measures that they might have a MODI form of diabetes. However, as I mentioned earlier, MODI is not the only cause of, of, of diabetes. There are diabetes associated with various genetic syndromes um, that, um, such as Midmelas and Wolfram that can often be also important to, to diagnose because it's got implications for other family members. So whilst we do have more access now to genomic testing and genetic testing, cost is always an issue. Um, and I hope that sometime in the future um, these tests become more accessible particularly say whole genome sequencing or exome sequencing because we'll be able to more widely and more efficiently pick up various forms of diabetes, some of which we don't know about yet. But um, uh, I think it's an exciting time to be practicing but uh, uh, because it would be, you know, identifying individuals with these particular conditions will have implications for treatment into the future. And I guess that brings me to the to the last question that I had, and it really relates probably to all the discussion we've had to now. Uh, do you think we, we will ever be able to subtype diabetes to the point where we can pr practice precision medicine? I mean, given all these factors about cost and so on, do you think we'll ever get to that point? 
Look, again, that's a really interesting question and all of the conditions that we've spoken about account for probably a small proportion of the, of the diabetic population that we see. And it's often difficult when you've got a patient in front of you to try and remember what these causes are, but they don't account for the largest number. Obviously, type 2 diabetes is still going to be the largest burden of cause of disease that we see in the diabetic population. Type 1 we're seeing more often now, but the other causes that we mentioned up to now are much less common. One of the ways I remember them when I'm sitting with a patient is by uh, help me. So help H for hemochromatosis, E for endocrinopathy, so Cushing's disease, acromegaly, pheochromocytoma, L for lipodystrophy, P for pancreatic disease, pancreatitis cancer and CF, and me, ME is me, MODY, M-O-D-Y, mitochondrial diabetes and DIDMOAD, and E is early onset diabetes, so the CUR 6.2 mutations. But having said that, while they run through our minds when we see patients, because it's important not to miss them because you can treat the diabetes in some of those situations and obviously with more directive therapy, Precision medicine is, is, a, is, a, is a buzzword uh, these days, um, or personalised medicine, but I think one of the things we need to determine once we even diagnose diabetes is what the underlying molecular defects are that contribute to that patient's diabetic phenotype. So they might be a leaner type 2 with an insulin deficiency. Um, obviously those who have type 2 who are overweight or obese are relatively insulin deficient, but we know the main defects are insulin resistance, but even that's a bit too simple because they might be more resistant at the liver than the muscle or vice versa. They might be resistant at one or the other or both. So we really only have a very limited understanding about the underlying pathophysiology of diabetes when it comes to trying to think about therapies. Because ideally what the plan would be, or the idea would be that we see patients in our clinic we can perform a set of phenotypic measures that might identify what subtype of diabetes, i.e. more liver versus muscle resistance or insulin secretory defect, and that we pick specific therapies that we know that address those pathophysiological defects so that rather than having a, a blanket approach and putting everybody on metformin and then adding a second agent to most people, we have a much more uh, individualised approach to treating people and it, that can even apply to diabetes prevention. If we can look at relatives of people who are predisposed to diabetes, identify what the metabolic defects are early and give them specific therapies that might address that defect, we'll probably be able to hopefully then prevent the diabetic phenotype from developing, which would obviously be hugely beneficial in relation to preventing some of the diabetes complications that can occur down the track. So. The question is, can we pr practice precision medicine? I think we don't know the answer to that question yet, but there are studies underway in our lab and others that are really addressing that question to see whether precision medicine in diabetes is something that might be uh, feasible in the future because you know it, it's, it, these medications cost money, they have adverse effects. We know that if we look at the diabetes prevention studies of metformin that only 30 or 40 percent of people um, have a, have a, you know, don't develop diabetes in the future with these medications. So what's going on in that 30 percent? What's going on in the other 70 percent? And why are those two groups different? I think that's the key question and uh, to see whether we can better and more personally or, pre or precisely address uh, diabetes prevention and diabetes treatment uh, into the future. Thanks, Jerry. Well, as I said, that was the last of the questions I actually had for you today. But I would like to ask you what would be your take-home messages on this fairly broad topic that we've covered in a fairly short space of time that you could give our members following on from today's discussion. 
I think the first is to be alert to uh, potential other clues that might suggest that the individual in front of us doesn't have the typical form of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, uh, number two is to sort of really start to think a little bit more about the uh, defects that might contribute to diabetes. And as I said, we all try and practice precision or personalised medicine, but the tools are fairly limited in terms of the, our ability to do that. Um, uh, and uh, I suppose the third is that it's an interesting time to be practicing uh, uh, endocrinology because, as I said, there are uh, more conditions being identified. We have greater or better genetic uh, tools available to us. And you know, once we understand a little bit more about the types of diabetes that are not typical um, types that we identify and treat, we might be able to also identify more specific and precise uh, treatments to uh, to treat our patient population. Thanks, Jerry. And and I have to say, I found the discussion interesting. So I'm hoping that our members do as well. So once again, thank you for your time and. Um, I'm sure if there are questions that come in from members, we'll perhaps direct them to you in the future, if that's all right with you. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. It's my pleasure to be part of this. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to the audience for listening to us, and I look forward to actually joining you again for some very interesting topics that we've got planned for you in the future. So watch this space, and I look forward to talking to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>